Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, June the 23rd. This is episode 2898. And uh, we have today a special guest of mine. He was actually here this last fall at one of my workshops. I got to meet him. His name is Matthew Searsley. And he is the Agorist Tax Advisor. Yes, that is a thing. We'll be talking about why this is an important topic for modern survivalism in just a few moments with Matthew. Uh, before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors today. Sponsor today, number one today, is Ridge Wallet. Ridge Wallet is my favorite way to be a minimalist with my wallet. It is just a great, great tool to minimize your life. When I first got it, I was not sold on the idea I looked at my big bullfold and all my stuff inside of it and thought, well, it's not all going to go in there. But I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'll carry it for a month. I can always get my big giant wallet and shove it back in my back pocket if I feel the need to. And I never did. It was over three years ago, and that's when I accepted them as a sponsor. Check them out today, RidgeWallet.com. And this is one of those brands that came to us when they were really, really small. I now see them being advertised on national television, and they're still with us, still sponsoring our show, and still offering a great discount to members of the MSB. So check them out today, RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. This was a very easy sponsor to accept. Oh, God, guess going back 12 years now, we, we brought on uh, uh, Backwoods Home, and they've been with us. I think they left for a little while, and then they, they, they went in and they are, uh, actually advertised another one of their publications for a while and switched back to Backwoods Home because the Backwoods Home magazine went away for a couple of years. I was not happy about this. Do you know why? Because I've been reading it since 1993. I'm glad I can read it again. I'm glad they're back. You can check them out today. It's a quarterly magazine. It is an awesome magazine. It's so full of information-rich content. You want to check them out, backwoodshome.com. With that, before I bring uh, Matt on for this discussion, I thought maybe we could have a quote of the day that had to do with our subject of the day, which is taxes. Robert Half once said, People try to live within their income so they can afford to pay taxes to a government that can't live within its income. Yeah, that's about sums it up perfectly, doesn't it? You have to live within your income so you can pay taxes to a government that can't live within its income. And keeps burdening you and your children and your children's children, your children's children, 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 children with more and more debt. That has to be repaid based on your labor. Um, that that is so true, and to me, it's one of many reasons to give them as little of my money as possible. I, I I've always seen it as my duty to the world at large to give them as little of my money as possible. Turns out, a federal judge says I'm a patriot for that. Yeah, you'll learn about all of that and more in just a moment with our conversation with Matthew. And with that, hey, Matt, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you on today, man. Let's. Um, we're going to talk today about um, tax strategy, basically. We're going to talk about how to optimize what we do so that we pay less to the government and keep more for ourselves. And you market yourself as an agorist tax advisor. I'm 
all about discussing that. But let's start out with who the heck is Matt, man? Like you're spacing out in school or whatever, and somehow you end up becoming an attorney and an entrepreneur and an amateur weightlifter and all this. How do you go from like the spacing out kid in school into uh, becoming a lawyer? So I went to a great college, the University of Dallas, that had a really good, uh, really strong Austrian economics program. I had a lot of friends in that program, and one of them convinced me to be a libertarian. And I said, okay, I'm going to go to law school, and I'm going to be a uh, criminal defense attorney and a constitutional lawyer, and I'm going to change the world. <laughs> and, uh, well, that, that, that part didn't work out too well. Um, ended up being a personal injury attorney for uh, the past 11 years. And then last year, uh, got into doing tax advice for small businesses. Got you. So you call yourself an agorist tax advisor, and I, we, you know, we always run into people with with what I do with the podcast and some of my other stuff that are like agorists don't pay taxes, and I'm like, no, not if they don't want to like spend time at Club Fed. They they tend to pay taxes on at least the income that like they live on in their day to day lives. So. What is your thoughts on like agorism and tax advisor going together? So I look at agorism as being all about making your own life better, making your family's life better, making your community lives better. If you have to follow some dumb government regulation to avoid going to prison, you should probably do that. But there's ways to do it where you can kind of bend the rules sometimes sometimes use the rules to your advantage, and I think that's very agorist. I think it's very agorist to say, the rule says X, I did X, leave me alone. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that, you know, one of the things people have to really look at with all of this, too, with this whole concept of agorist not paying taxes, like, do you want to get a mortgage? Do you want to be able to buy a car? Uh, do you want to not become a target of government investigations? Like, you know, I, I kind of always point out, like on, on the Unloose the Goose episodes when we talk about agorism, that even the mafia, you know, of today, you, you ever watch a show like Goodfellas or whatever, they always have a legitimate business. And there's a reason. We have to have cash flow in our lives, and we have to be able to, in some way, explain that cash flow, or we end up in a bad situation. And, you know, maybe you did something totally innocent, but you ended up in the government's crosshairs, and then they notice you haven't filed a tax return in five years. Well, now they're going to investigate that. Yeah, when we were talking earlier, between us, you, you mentioned, for instance, the people that are being investigated because of the Capitol demonstration. And those people are being, it's, it's preposterous, but they are being investigated as domestic terrorists. So if you were investigating someone that you suspected of terrorism against their own country, you might want to know, like, well, where does their money come from? Exactly. And, you know, if there is no reported income, that's going to definitely make it a lot more suspicious. Maybe, maybe they really are terrorists. Maybe they're getting funded by the Russians or the Chinese or whatever boogeyman is going on today. Or at least maybe that can be used as the potential justification to subpoena more information, get warrants, things like that. Um, because, I mean, I, I, I think if you had told anybody back in December – and I even tried to, to stay the hell away from the Capitol. Because I thought, but I never saw this. I, I said to my wife, there's going to be freaking rioting tomorrow at this thing, right? Like, I knew it was a bad place to be. But if you had told me even, you know, months from now, because I have a, a, a family member who's being forced to do this as part of a, a task force to the federal marshals. 
that will be literally going through phone records to geolocate people that have been at this place and then having them interviewed by law enforcement for existing in the area. I would have said you were crazy, but that's happening now. And I, I think people need to just think about the fact that if that can happen there, we have no idea what the next thing is going to be that, that has something like this going on. And it could be very small and you just happen to be wrong place, wrong time. It could be very big and, you know, wrong place, wrong time. Again, it's just easier to be that way. I think that there just seems like I wouldn't want to be a person today who had means and no reportable income. I just think it you, you might as well just plaster a target on your back and your front. Yeah, and you might get away with it for a few years, but eventually somebody's going to notice something and you know, again, I I I don't like paying taxes. I don't want to pay taxes. I avoid all the taxes I can. But if I'm in prison, my family's not making the money I'd be making and I got to take care of them. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, why did you start your firm in the middle of an economic downturn? Because you started this like what, like the beginning of COVID, didn't you? No, no. Actually, it was much later than that. It was uh, November of last year. Okay, so we were really screwed then, and you decide, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start a business on uh, uh, advising people on taxes. Yeah. So there, there was two reasons. The initial reason was. Um, you know, my day job is still being, you know, personal injury attorney, car attorney. And when you have everybody on lockdown, there's a lot fewer car accidents, which means mm -hmm. there's a lot fewer cases, which means my revenue dropped by almost 25% last year. And I was trying to come up with some money. And I tried a couple of different things that didn't work out. <laughs> um, but then I started talking with some, some friends about, well, you know, hey, I can maybe help you save some money on your taxes. And like I just mentioned that, and people are like, yes, please, yes, of course I'll pay you $500, $1,000, $2,000 to save money on taxes. And I, I, think, I think it was unintentionally kind of really smart because a lot of those people were desperate to save every single penny they could because their business was not doing well. So, hey, if I can save you know, $5,000 on taxes this year – That's money well spent. Maybe I wouldn't have worried about it three or four years ago because I was flush with cash. You know, and I, I think one of the ways you have to look at like your ROI as a, as a client to somebody that's a good, solid tax advisor is the cumulative ROI. Like, because obviously you want to build a book of business and have repeat customers and all, and, and things change. <laughs> but a lot of the structural changes are kind of like you do them in the beginning, and then there's tweaks, you know, kind of along the way. So it's kind of like instead of going to therapy with a therapist every week for the rest of your life, you do some work, and every once in a while you have a consultation catch-up. So even if a person doesn't save a tremendous amount of money in that first year, if they're saving that money year over year over year because of one structural change in the beginning, their ROI on that few grand they paid you is huge, better than they're going to get in a freaking stock market. <laughs> You know, I think so. And especially, you know, do you think taxes are going to be lower in five years or higher in five years? I, so maybe it's only saving you a thousand dollars a year now, but maybe it's going to be saving you two thousand dollars a year in 2027. Absolutely. Um, so you call yourself a tax advisor. Explain to people how that's different than like a straight up tax attorney or like a certified public accountant. So I am an attorney. Um, and importantly, I'm licensed in Texas and I'm licensed to practice federal law, 
But I'm not a tax attorney because what people mean by a tax attorney almost always is these are the people big companies hire to sue the IRS for special tax treatment or you've been sued by the IRS and you need someone to defend you. 99% of the time when someone says tax attorney, that's what they mean. Uh, according to federal law, and I don't like this law, but according to federal law, you must be an attorney or an accountant to bill yourself and to uh, charge for tax advice. Okay. Um, but most accountants don't do much tax advice. Most accountants are, uh, they do math. They do computations. They're bean counters. You, right. And that's a very important skill. And I'm, I'm glad I have my accountant who does the, the math for me. And also, frankly, to double check my own work. But most accountants, they aren't going to preemptively give you a lot of tax advice. Um, a lot of them will at least say, hey, I noticed as I was doing your advice, you know, as I was doing your taxes this year, if you did it this way next year, you'd save $1,000 on your taxes. But they're not sitting down and helping you plan it. And that's what I do. I, you know, I, again, I've been in business for less than a year, but my goal is have clients. I meet with them multiple times a year, including I'm going to meet with almost every client in December to plan the, what we're doing the next year. And just make sure that we're doing everything we can to pay the government as little as possible. I like playing the government as little as possible. It's one way of uh, fighting back. I think it's a much better way to fight back than a lot of uh, political activity and things like that. Because not only – see, this is what I've always tried to explain to people why I think this is – if you – I'm anti-political, but even if you're political, I guarantee you the government does stuff with your money you find reprehensible. And it's, it's a double-edged sword in that, so the government takes a dollar of mine. Now I don't have it. So I have, I have less freedom and liberty because one thing that brings people liberty is money. Whether we want to admit that or not, it does. But not only do I not have it, they do, and they get to spend it becoming larger and more powerful. And to me, the best thing I can do for myself and for liberty as a whole is keep as much money as possible and give them as little as possible. And I know that sounds crazy, but I think it's true. I don't think it's crazy at all. I think it's perfectly sane. <laughs> you know, and, and again, I, I do this as a business, but I do it because, like, this is kind of my political action almost. You know, this is how I can actually fight the government in my own very tiny little way. You know, I've always found with people that I've worked with, doing strategic, like, structural things uh, and procedural things for taxes, the really good ones. Richard was an accountant that I had for years. He was also a, he was actually a CPA and an attorney, and he was awesome. And he retired. We still have a good relationship. He'll write a letter for me or something like that, but he doesn't work day-to-day -day anymore. And he handed me off to a gal that was, like, his protege. He was, like, her Yoda. And, man, for her, her name's Mary Johnson, and she's not very big, but she's definitely worth her weight in gold. It's a game. It's like a game that you're trying to win, and you win by doing better. Like and and like like she'll save me money, and she's gonna bill me the same no matter what because basically my taxes take a certain amount of time every year. But she's happy, right? She didn't get anything out of it. She got like an endorphin hit, like a gamer gets when they get the Sword of Azeroth or something like that, you know. And, and I found that people that are good at this, that's what it is. For them, in in a way, it's a game that they get satisfaction when they do better. That's been really, uh, frankly, that's my 
most useful skill is I can gamify things like that. I've done it in personal injury. I've done it in, you know, trying to get a homestead set up. I've done it with this tax stuff. And it's exactly that. You know, I, I hate to admit it, but sometimes, you know, I'm reading through the tax code trying to get an answer to a question and I'll see something that's not even the answer to the question, but it's like, oh, I can turn around and use that to save that client another 500 bucks this year. And it feels great. <laughs> yeah, I, I really do think it's kind of an endorphin. It's the same thing. It's the same phenomenon for some people. They post a picture on Instagram. They get a, a thousand loves or whatever, and they get this feeling, except it's, I think it's far more productive when you, what you're doing is denying government uh, access to the tit for a while. And, and I think that's, that's literally what we're trying to do here. And I think that it's, it's remarkable how well this activity pays for itself. Um, of all people, I think it was uh, uh, Man- uh, uh, Keys, like in Keynesian economics, said that uh, the avoidance of tax is one of the few intellectual activities that still has a good reward at the end, or something to that effect. But even even a Keynesian doesn't want to pay taxes if they don't have to. <laughs> you know, and and some people don't like. Uh, the federal courts and whatnot, but there's a court decision that basically says it is your patriotic duty as an American to avoid any taxes you can legally avoid. Hmm. Well, I know like it's someone, a... Go ahead. someone was sued for tax evasion because they basically, again, they followed the rules. They really used the rules like they weren't supposed to be done, and the IRS sued them for tax evasion, and the court came back and said not only is this not tax evasion – but it's actually patriotic to pay only the taxes you actually owe. Makes sense. I mean, I think we're, we're supposed to look at it as the tax code itself is a social tool. And I don't think many people look at it that way, but it is. When they put these exemptions and rules in place, they, some of it's done for themselves. I mean, there's no doubt if you're writing the rules, you will customize them a little bit so they benefit you. But additionally, they know, for instance, that if taxes are higher, businesses will spend more money and accumulate less corporate earnings. They'll find a way to push that money back into the business, and that can actually drive employment. So that entire giant megatropolis of a contract that is the tax code is designed to be used. They didn't write it so that it would not be used. So I think that's consistent with that court ruling. Exactly. I mean, any good tax advisor, CPA, etc., will tell you about 1% of the tax code says you have to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. And about 99% says unless. Unless, yeah. I always say it's 10% what you got to do and 90% how you get out of doing it. You know, I mean, that's... that, And I, and I actually think that it... You know, you say it's a game for you and you do it professionally, so... It's, it's maybe more a game for you, but I, I think that anybody that starts to really look at how can I, it's kind of like anything that has that like treasure hunter type uh, vibe to it. Like Some people have their whole lives consumed by chasing gold nuggets, or like when my wife and I go to the beach and we're looking for seashells, there's a certain intrinsic thing in our minds that like, finding a reward is good. And it, it probably goes back to our caveman days where when you found the right berry and you ate it, you know, you, you got vitamin C and you were less likely to die. So I think it's hardwired into us, but it's one of those things that still has that valuable intellectual pursuit. 
Because saving a little is really saving a lot. You actually say that it's a big deal to save even 1% on your taxes. Now, how is 1% a big deal? So it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, you know, it, but it really adds up because, first of all, any money you save on taxes is by definition an after-tax increase. So, you know, it, I, I, I like to update Ben Franklin, you know, a penny saved is 1.4 pennies earned. Um, but the second thing is that a lot of people, everybody, everybody, you know, every adult has a lot of responsibilities. You've got rent or you've got a mortgage, you've got a car payment or you've got this expense and that expense. And for most people in America, their disposable income, the, the money they get to do what they want with and have fun with is somewhere between about 10 and 20% of their total earnings. And so if you can suddenly get 1% more money, that's not 1%, that's like a 5 the 10% increase in your disposable income. And, you know, again, those little things can actually make a big difference in the enjoyment of your life. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I, you know, I, I think your, your your point is valid. That, like, you have to look at the percentage of the tax versus the total tax. So, like, it's 1% off the tax bill, But how does it relate to a person's disposable income, right? Like it could be a much larger percentage, right? And that can also compound. You know, if you're using that extra money to pay off debt or to invest in something, you know, compound interest is incredibly powerful. Give it five or ten years, and that suddenly that's real money. Then it's compound interest going in the right direction, right? Instead of compound interest (laughs) going to Visa, MasterCard, or the government, it's compound interest going to you. Exactly. They, because when it's when, it, when it's compound interest going to them, that's what they call it compound because that's what it does. It pounds you, right? It pounds the hell out of you. It, it destroys your wealth when it's going out the door, but it builds wealth coming in the door. And so, some of the best advice I ever got, and I don't remember even who gave it to me, but they told me it's not how much money you make, it's how much money you keep. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that so many times I couldn't tell you the first place I heard it from, but it's it's – it's one of my things that's like a tenant in how I live my life. You know, I mean, my one of our good friends, you know, fellow uh, or expert council member, uh, Amy, uh, Nurse Amy and Doc Bones, one time my wife and I were talking about traveling, and she's like, well, you travel first class, right? And I'm like, well, sometimes and not all the time. It depends on how much. She's like, you, you own a business. I'm, I'm sure all your travel is business travel. And I'm, I'm like, yeah. She goes, so why do you give the government your money? Why don't you just spend it on yourself inside your business and then deduct it? And I was like, okay. And she wanted to keep going. She gets excited and she likes to go. She's kind of hyper. And I'm like, no, you're done. Like, you don't ever have to explain that to me ever again. Like, I'm, and, and, and since that conversation, we travel anywhere. We always structure that travel so we can justify it as business travel. And I fly first class. I'd rather sit in the front of the plane. I'd rather get on first, get off first. I would, I'd rather not pay extra money for my bags. I'd rather eat cheese and drink wine. And this time, you know, with what's going on now, wear my face mask less than sit in the back. And, yes, I spent more money, but they don't get it. And I think that, like, that's something that a lot of people overlook. And that may not be the best example because that's kind of like, yeah, I get a benefit, but I didn't really save money that way. But there's a lot of things that you can start designing your lifestyle around and, and inter, 
weaving them with your business where you can legitimately deduct them. And as you pointed out to me, I'm just being a patriot by, you know, using all of those. And, you know, at some point, what, what some people I know look at it as, you know, if you're in the 28% tax bracket and you spend $1,000 doing something you want to do and it's now tax deductible, the government just paid 28% of that expense. Hmm. And that's, see, that's what I'm saying about the, the airline uh, situation. I'm not really saving money, but I'm getting more for less. That's, that's the way that, that that works out. And when you start looking at it that way, it's very close to like a better experience than breaking even on cost because I'm not going to get dinged for that extra bag. I'm not going to pay 12 bucks for a glass of wine, right? I'm going to, it's, it's all, and if you, you fly there and back and you double those charges, all of a sudden, you know, that upcharge isn't that much. And then the government paid 20% of not what's left, but the total upcharge, right? So man, now all of a sudden, you know, maybe I paid, Five percent more for a I, I don't know how much you fly, but to me the difference between coach and first class is about a three hundred percent better experience. Yeah, I've I've gotten to fly first class a couple of times. Uh, actually, I flew last summer during COVID, and it was like a twenty dollar upcharge, so it was a no brainer. Um, yeah. But you, as cool as that is, it's even cooler when you're doing something you would have done anyway. Yeah. So I yeah. have I have rental properties in Memphis, and okay. I have family in Memphis. And wouldn't you know, every time I go up there for <laughs> Thanksgiving or Christmas, I I do work, and the IRS will sometimes check this. So I don't just say it's a business trip. I yeah. go up, I meet with my property manager. Of course. I drive around the properties. I drive around the neighborhoods. I look at other properties for sale. But now, the mileage up there and back is deductible. My hotel room is deductible. My meals are deductible. My wife's meals are deductible because she's my business partner. My kids' meals are not, so I got to get a separate receipt from them from all the restaurants we eat at. But it's really easy for me to save about a thousand dollars in taxes every time I go visit my family there. Which you would do anyway, but you are working. That that's that's the key into the the travel structure. Like I yeah, I like going to Florida, but. I need content for the show. Uh, Amy and Bones, we meet with them whenever we go out there. They're strategic partners, right? They're, that's a strategic relationship. They're on my show all the time. We do strategic initiatives together. It's, you know, it's not like I I, I went to Mexico and got a, a a massage and came back and didn't do anything, right? And I, if I went to Mexico and got a massage, I would do something when I went there, right? And Different businesses, maybe there's different ways to make sure that you cover your bases, but in most of it, there's probably a way to do it. And you can be in multiple businesses at once. Again, I've got real estate. I've got my job as a personal injury attorney that gives me some tax deductions. I've got my tax advice stuff. And so I can mix and match a little bit with what I want to do and different ways of doing it. And... One of the, there's sayings that tax people use, and one of the great sayings is, if you want to change your tax, you have to change your facts. Mm. And just by minor changes in yeah. how you account for something, you're spending the money anyway, but just how you account for it can completely change something from a business expense to a personal expense or vice versa. How, how do you feel about the person that doesn't own a business? Like, there's some things you can do. With investing and all, but to me, 
like a lot of what we do is not really available to the person that's straight up an employee only. Yeah, I mean, other than investing in a 401k or an IRA, it, I mean, again, tax deferred municipal bonds, maybe. I mean, there's some things, but like, you're not going to be deducting your travel to see your Aunt Edna if you don't have a business. But again, there are ways to buy into a business. You know, that's how I got started in okay. real estate. I, I have a property manager. I have agents I work with who help find me properties. You know, I'm I'm not spending thirty to forty hours a week working on my real estate business. I'm probably spending closer to two to three hours a week working sure. on it. Um, and my wife spends a lot more time on it, honestly. But you know, that's something that if you have enough capital to start investing, or if you have the time to find a place where you don't have to put capital in, well, now you have a business. You know, yeah. you can start a side hustle, or you know, I love your example you've talked about. You know. You like something, create a review blog for it. Get advertising. Put it on YouTube. Turn on advertising. Yeah. Do reviews of things. Link to sales. And A, now you've turned a personal expense into a business expense. But even better, if it works out and is popular, maybe you actually just created an income stream. Yeah. I mean, like years and years ago, I did exactly that with wine. I got on this wine kick. I was And this site doesn't even exist anymore. Um But I got on this wine kick. I was drinking these really great wines, and I want and I got into like you took a little little bitty course and learned how to do tasting notes and all this shit. And I'm like, I'm going to drink one really great wine a week for a year. And the, it was pretty early in the days of blogging. It was before social media was a big deal and all that. Um, in fact, the social media that was around is most of it's not even around anymore. But it kind of took off. I knew some SEO and stuff like that. It kind of took off, and it actually made me money back when you could make money with Google AdSense. And I actually made a profit. And a person would say, well, it's good you have more money, but you actually paid tax that you wouldn't have paid otherwise. Well, 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 wait a minute. You know, I'm drinking $30, $40 bottles of wine every week and building up my wine cellar and all this, and the government's paying for it all. And I was going to do that anyway. Right, I was going to do that anyway. I didn't do it to lose money. I think that's that's something I always try to caution with people. You do not set up a business to lose money. That doesn't actually help you. You set up a business to change money from income into expense. Right, like that's the the strategy there. So I was going to do that anyway. I tried to make a profit. I did make a profit, but Uncle Sam paid for all my wine for a year. And I do want to caution people because the Trump tax cuts changed the hobby rules mm. to be far worse than they used to be. It used to be if you had some income from a hobby, you could at least deduct your expenses from the hobby. But I think it was but for like now, five years or something, and then you, if you didn't make any money, you had to stop. Is that how it but was? They got, but they got rid of that. Once you're a hobby now, mm -hmm. officially, yeah. you may still have to pay the taxes on the income. And you may not get to deduct any of the expenses of the hobby. What the hell? How's that yeah, work? It's it's one of the tax deductions, uh, the itemized tax deductions that went away in a whole category of things in the Trump tax cuts. Hmm. Hmm. See, this and is why you have comes up with uh, hobby farms. It can be you know, completely financially devastating. Yeah, because you, you may make you know twenty or thirty thousand dollars on a hobby farm you spend fifty thousand dollars on. If you now owe that tax and don't get to deduct anything, 
that's a thousand, you know, multi-thousand dollar tax bill you have now. Yeah, when you should have had a, a, a big loss, which, you know, that's, that's, that's structuring that as a business instead of a hobby, and that's filing a Schedule F. But, yeah, I guess there's people that maybe could end up in certain hobby situations. I realize that. And, like, I think that's the reason, like, back when I was doing that, that, that blog wasn't a business. That blog was part of a business, right? So it was like Spirco Publishing, and that was one of my blogs. So like, I think structure is really, really important. Absolutely. I, and that's one of the things um, I was looking at with one of my clients not too long ago, and I can't go into too much about it. But basically, he had a company that was already an LLC. His wife had her own consulting firm that was not incorporated yet. And it was making some money, but not that much money. And my first pastor, I'm like, well, you know, if you go to be an LLC for her, um, you'll save about a thousand dollars a year in taxes, but it's going to cost you about a thousand dollars a year to maintain the LLC. May not be worth it. And then I went through a second time. I was like, wait, you could just have your LLC buy her company, make her a, a member of the LLC. She wasn't already. Yep. Um, and now she can get the LLC advantages. Now, God forbid you ever get divorced. That's going to make things a little more complicated. But from a tax standpoint, it's a no-brainer. That divorce is complicated anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, that, those are still up for grabs anyway, you know. Um, what the, the other side of it, though, is if one of you dies, it's already handled, right? It's, I mean, you, you just become the sole owner of the uh, LLC unless, you know, you set something up otherwise. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think this really is about rule raping. And uh, we had a conversation earlier we were talking about how, like, you, you got to look at it the way, like, we, we both were fans of Tim Ferriss and his thing with, you know, he went to Thailand and he wants to be a Thai boxing champion. And I, I think you said he studied for like three months or something like that. He learned the rules. He learned how not to get his head cracked. And it turned out that they weighed in the day before the fight and he used the same techniques that weightlifters do to lose weight and no one in Thailand did that. So when you when you wrestle competitively, you, you you do certain things to lose weight, and he did that. And then you know you have a full day to kind of put that weight back on. And then one of the rules was if you push the guy out of the the ring three times, you win. So he didn't score any points. All he did was shove these guys out of the ring, and he became like this Thai boxing champion. And that people would say that's cheating. That's no. I, I to to me that's they had a he had a goal. He understood the rules. And he was better at utilizing them than his opponents. And that's how we should be structuring what we do in dealing with taxes and government. Precisely. You know, there are all these rules, and they're so complicated, nobody can know them all. But the more you know, the more you can use to your advantage. I was just reading um, a columnist, and he was talking about, do you ever want to bring down an organization? Just read the rules. Hmm. And he talked about in the gulag, there was a rule that if there was a complaint filed, they had to respond to the complaint within two weeks. Oh. And so some political dissident set up an assembly line for complaints. of complaint writers. <laughs> and they sent something like 75,000 complaints for 1,000 people in a year. Holy shit. And like at some point, Moscow got involved because, like, what are you doing? Yeah. And, like, they basically managed to force them to agree to start treating people better. And, again, it was still horrible, but you made the situation better. Same thing. Like, you shouldn't have to pay any taxes at all, in my opinion. But if you can cut them in half, 
your life's a lot better. Yeah, and like I said, every dollar you keep, they don't have. And it's 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 basically I, I look at it this way. Imagine you've got a guy with a club, and he's going to hit you with that club, right? But it is a heavy club. If you could start whittling the club down, you'd whittle as much wood off that club as you could. So you're getting whacked with a stick instead of a club. And that's how I look at taxes. How 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 much can I take away from the ogre's club every year before he clubs me in the head with it once a year? So I mean, and there is of course a place you don't want to be crazy. Yeah. You know, especially God, some of these YouTube tax advisors, they terrify me. Like it is possible to be too aggressive. And I'm I'm fairly aggressive. Um I'm I push for paying no more tax than is actually owed. But I'll tell my clients, frankly, most of my clients are more aggressive than I am, and a lot of time I gotta tell them, you can do that, but mm-hmm. That's kind of dangerous. That's going to up your risk of an audit. And while I think we'll win, it's not a guarantee. And pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. See, when it comes to audits, too, winning does not necessarily mean it was a pleasant experience. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, you don't want to do that unless you, you know, you have no choice. And, And even if you win, you probably had to pay some attorney or some accountant five or ten grand more. Yeah. So again, like it, you'd still want to win, but if you can avoid the audit in the first place by again, eh, maybe I'm not going to get that hundred dollar deduction. That's iffy. It's you're probably better off in the long term. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Or I think sometimes like how you classify a deduction might be more important than whether the deduction is legitimate or not. In that, if you have one category of deductions, one one name for like what this thing is catering or customer training or whatever. Sometimes some of the stuff you put in that could go in a different category and both would be accurate, but it prevents you from having this one giant bubble kind of if you're looking like if you're looking for audit triggers, that's one of the things my CPA talked to me about. Like let's move this over here and call it something else. It's it's totally legitimate and it may not matter, but why Why slap the, the tiger in the balls? Why not just leave the tiger alone and let's not do this? Yeah, famously, the home office deduction used to be that. Like, yeah. it, it stopped about five or six years ago. But before that, that was like a 50-50 chance of being audited if you claimed it. But there were other ways to claim it for most people if you were smart. Yeah. Yeah, and now it's one of the best deductions there is. Under the, t- the Trump taxes... It's because it, most people lost the SALT deductions, which include, like, a lot of your, your mortgage and property expenses. And even people that didn't lose it, for us, we didn't technically lose it. It didn't make sense to take it. The itemized deductions were higher, uh, lower than the, the doubling of a standard deduction is what happened. So it's like, yeah, this adds up to, like, 20 grand, but for the two of you, it's, like, 24 grand. You have a $4,000 larger deduction By not itemizing. Okay, well, we're going to do that. That's that's a no-brainer. But what that did is it left all of those housing expenses non-deducted from the income tax, right? And then my accountant, because she's a freaking genius, backfed them into the square footage deduction on the home office expense. And it was like, that's where I think people need to talk to somebody like you. I'm lucky that I have an accountant that thinks this way that was trained by somebody that thought that way, most CPAs do not think that way. They, like you said, they might see, some, oh, you could do this, or oh, you could do that. 
the shit she threw out with that, and, and, and I have, like, audit insurance and all with them, and she's like, I'll stand for that. Don't worry about it. Like, this is solid. I've been doing this with all my clients, and I'm like, okay. And, and I think that, like, you really need someone that thinks that strategic way, especially once you get into the point you're running a business and you have enough income that you're paying enough tax that it starts to hurt. Yeah, I you know I I actually really dislike Robert Kiyosaki. I think oh, he's a, a charlatan. Yeah, yeah. But one of the pieces of advice that he gives that's really good is if you're in business, you need a team. You I can't heard. do it all yourself. If you're a big enough business, you should have a lawyer. You should have a tax advisor. You should have like, – there are people you should have working with you who are not employees probably. They're probably some independent person. And you know those teams can be much greater than the sum of their parts. Yeah, Kiyosaki really to me is kind of a scam artist. I loved his first book, and I'll tell you what would have made that book perfect. While there is some reference to people that I knew as a child, this book is a work of fiction. Designed to teach yeah. you lessons in life. And it would have been a great book. He wrote it, and he markets it as though he really had a poor dad. His dad retired very, very wealthy. And no one can figure out, this guy that's supposed to be a super rich dude in Hawaii, who the hell he is, right? Like, there's not even anybody that meets the uh, description. So, like, he used a wonderful storytelling. Uh, in fact, I think he modeled the whole concept off Richest Man in Babylon, actually. But, you know, when you read Richest Man in Babylon, you know totally well it was just made up based on historical concepts. And, and other than that, I think that book is great. And then he hit a home run with it, and then it became hucksterism really, really quickly. Yeah, I'll, I'll defend the Cashflow Quadrant book is actually a great book. and That one's solid. And I think anybody in business should read it to understand taxes better. And some of the Rich Dad Advisor books are really good. Um, yeah. Gerald Sutton is a genius on incorporation. Um, he's who I actually recommend all my clients. If you're going to incorporate and you're going to pay somebody to do it, hire him because he is amazing. Cool. Um, but yeah, the other other Rich Dad books. Eh, it's I, a bit less the books. The books are yeah, the books are what they yeah. are. It's it's more of the whole the whole hucksterism, the seminars for. $20,000 seminars to learn to get rich in real estate or whatever. Like, if you got 20 grand, I'll tell you how to get rich in real estate. Put it into real estate. Right? <laughs> that's, that's what you do with your 20 grand. Don't go, go, go visit Rich Dad. And, you know, uh, so I'll, I'll let that go because that's kind of an aside there. Um, what are the advantages for a person to have an advisor for their taxes who's also an attorney? instead of an accountant? And is there any time where maybe it would be more advantageous to have the accountant instead of the attorney? So I'll start with the accountant first. Um, it's probably going to be a little bit cheaper because the accountant will not only advise you, but usually it'll be some sort of package deal for the advice, plus he'll actually do your taxes. And like when you hire me, I am not an accountant. I do not have an accountant who works for me other than for my personal taxes and my business taxes. So you're going to need somebody to sell you your taxes. There is one huge advantage to having an attorney for a tax advisor, though, and that's it's an attorney, which means you have an attorney-client relationship, which means you have attorney-client privilege for anything you discuss with your attorney. There is no privilege at all for accountants. Hmm. If the IRS thinks that you have intentionally cheated on your taxes, they can subpoena your accountant and say, give us every email you have, every note you have about this client. 
and your accountant will usually call you and say, you can bite this, but unless you get a court order saying I don't have to, I'm going to give them this stuff in 20 days. Hmm. That's interesting. That, uh, make, that makes me wonder, like I said, the, the, the gal I have now is a CPA. She's not an attorney, but she was trained by a guy that was both. And I never really thought about this till you said that, but she will not communicate with be uh, with email, and she has me take notes. <laughs> I wonder if there's like a little Richard in that. I, it's it just I, I've never seen her really take notes about our discussions ever. And you know what? That's really smart. But that, again, you've already said you have an absolute gem of a CPA there. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not normal. They're not, no, there's not a lot of Mary Johnsons in the world. There just aren't. So um, let's talk about different types of taxation for companies, like and the structure of the company itself, S-Corp, C-Corp, etc. Is there one that's best for business? Is it and it depends? And most things are and it depends. So, so there's four types of taxation. Um, sole proprietorship partnerships, C-Corps or traditional corporations, and S-Corps. And those don't necessarily have anything to do with the type of business you are. So you can be an LLC and be taxed as any of the four of those. And you can actually change it from year to year as an LLC. But it, it really depends. Um, if you're in business, if you're a sole proprietor or a single person running a business, you know, you're an IT person, you're a lawyer, you're anything like that, You probably want to be an S-Corp. Um, if you are trying to grow a company, especially a side business, and you're not taking any money out of it for you personally, though, a C-Corp is going to be better. Mm -hmm. You're going to pay a lot less in taxes with the C-Corp because there's only a 21% tax rate on C-Corps right now. And that's permanent. That's the only part of the Trump tax cut, I think, that's permanent. Um, and again, especially if you're a high-earning individual, maybe you're in the 28% or the 35% tax brackets – You know, if you're going to be investing the money anyway into the C-Corp, but maybe you don't want to invest it this year, maybe you want to invest it next year, you'll do a lot better with the C-Corp. There are times that a sole proprietorship is better. If you're doing any sort of real estate that you're wanting to ever do a refinance on, you're actually probably better off running from a tax standpoint as a sole proprietorship. Now, maybe you still own your real estate in an LLC for the asset protection, So that's that's a great thing. Okay, so how would you do that? Do I do I finance the home and then sell it to my corporation? Uh, no, you don't sell it. Okay, uh, you. Transfer. So it, and this this gets very complicated, and different states do it differently. And if you screw it up, you can screw up your mortgage. So okay. be very careful. But what I have done, I have personally done this, and it worked. I buy the house in my name. Importantly, at the time, it was just in my name, not my name's, and my wife's name. Okay. I created LLC that I am as a sole member in. Mm. I transfer, I don't sell it, I transfer as an asset the house into the LLC. Okay. For tax purposes, nothing happened. Okay. As long as it's a sole proprietorship for the LLC, for the taxation. And now, oh, I want to refinance it because house prices have doubled for some reason in the last year. So I pull it out. Typically, you need to ha own it in your own name for a minimum of three to six months to do it. Okay. You refinance it. Again, typically, you need to own it for your in your own name for a minimum of six months before you transfer it back in. Okay. And then you transfer it back in. 
Hmm. That is complicated, but I can see where it would be advantageous. Because it you know, is... And it, and it cost me about $1,000 to do the paperwork to transfer it one way and transfer it the other, which is a tax-deductible business expense. I'm willing to do that to have the asset protection from it. You can do what you want. Gotcha. So... There is some important stuff in there that I want to dig into a little bit. Like the LLC thing is huge, and and that bit me years and years ago, where I had an LLC that I was a, 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 the largest holder in, um, but I had three partners in it. I think you call them members in an LLC, not partners, but they're partners for lack of a more accurate term. Um, and we didn't realize that we even had the option when we set that LLC up to be taxed as a C-corporation. And we had a really great revenue yield in the first year. and It was really half a year. And that did not give us time to spend a lot of that money inside the company. So we ended up at the end of the tax year with a very large profit. Each one of us was going to be taxed based on our share holdings in the LLC. So I had like, I think I had... 38% of the company or something like that. So that's a big tax bill, right? This was hundreds of thousands of dollars. We were forced into basically we prepared K-1s for each member, so that was our portion of the income. And then, well, what's your tax consequence going to be for that? And then to distribute a little bit of extra to everybody so everybody got a little money out of the year and then put mo- to, to, to pay the tax bill. Because otherwise, you know, my tax bill is going to be $40,000 more this year, and I don't have the money, right? So if it had been, if we had chosen that year to be taxed as a C-Corp, the company would have paid the bill, we would have paid less money, and the money would have just stayed in the company, which is what we would have preferred to do. But we were at a point where, like, because we trapped ourselves, we couldn't do that. That one strategic mistake cost us tens of thousands of dollars. Yep, and it is one of the reasons I love the LLC, because as an LLC, you can, with some rules, change from year to year what you want to be. So you can be an S-Corp this year, and then you know, January of next year, file paperwork and say, this year I'm going to be a C-Corp, or vice versa. But you can't do it retroactively. Once you get to January 1st, yeah. you can't do anything to change the previous year. Sometimes you can file something late in the year and say, oh, I, I meant to do this. Yeah. The IRS will sometimes let you do that, and they sometimes won't. It does raise the odds of an audit, but if it's going to save you $50,000, it might be worth it. We didn't get but, audited, but we got told to pound sand. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, unfortunately, this is, this is something I hear so often. You know, somebody does something, and then they come to me and they say, how do I save on taxes? Yeah, and I want to tell them you hire me three months ago. Yeah, don't do that thing you did three three months ago. You hire me before you do that thing you did. For us, it's like we didn't even really see it coming, and it was a train wreck. And we saw it like around Christmas, and it's like, oh, we're just screwed. This is just not going to happen, you know. Um, you know, we even looked at like, can you change your fiscal year? And that's very difficult to do with uh, with an LLC. You, I guess you can, but. We don't need to get into the technicalities there. For most people, it's not going to happen. So it was a it was a trap of our own making due to our ignorance of tax code, right? And and some level of ignorance of, of corporate structure. And this was not for stupid people. Well, it was one stupid person, and it was 
three people who had run businesses successfully and probably made the mistake because we thought we knew more than we knew. And we even had a tax attorney help us with, with the like certain structures within the Articles of Incorporation and uh, how things would be handled if there was a, you know, a divorce of one of the partners. All, like, and we just didn't nail that one down. And it was a total mistake. And it, it was expensive. And it was probably something that you could have looked at from a mile away and it's what you're going to do to yourself. You know? And you know what? It, it's really, it is kind of terrifying to me sometimes how much you can absolutely screw yourself. Mm. I don't know if you saw the story about this Robin Hood trader. He made about 80 grand last year okay. doing day trading, but he has an $800,000 tax bill for that $80,000 gain because he didn't know about the wash sale rule. Huh. And that basically says if you buy and sell a stock, Within 30 days, or sorry, you sell the stock and then you buy it again within 30 days. Oh, you may not get to count your loss. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so you got to buy a different this, security. Yeah, and, and again, most people don't know that. And yeah. a lot of these Robin Hood people were in and out, in and out, in and out. And like, he did like 45 million dollars of sales or something. Yeah, but they only but, they only made 80 grand in profit. That's uh, and I understand the why of that rule. Because this is what everybody with a brain would do without that rule being in place, right? If it's like it's December and I've got a big loss on a mutual fund or a stock I'm holding and I don't have to wait to buy it back and I just want to hold it, well, what would I do? I, I, I'd log into my E-Trade account or I'd phone up my broker and I'd say sell it and buy it back an hour later. And I'd write off the capital loss, and I'd restate, reset the basis, right? And you'd be stupid if you didn't do that, which is why they have the rule that says you can't. It doesn't seem fair applied to day trading that way, though. It really doesn't. Well, and there are ways day traders can avoid it, but he didn't actually qualify as a day trader under the IRS regs, I guess. Okay. He was too too hobbyish with it, I guess. Yeah. It, and I, again, I'm not his attorney, so I don't know all the details, but this is a story that was going around a bunch of tax people and – I contacted every client I had and said, hey, if you didn't know this, this is the rule. Also, be careful. Currently, it doesn't look like this rule applies to crypto, but I absolutely think it's going to eventually. Yeah, well. So be careful doing this with crypto because they do sometimes make tax law retroactive. Yeah, I, I have it for my public crypto. And, of course, it's all public, okay? But for my public crypto, I have a... a a strategy that I employ for this, when you have a loss you can take, especially if you have gains you want to offset, what you do is you you go to a crypto that moves so in lockstep with the one that you're taking a loss on that you might as well have bought it back. Because I'm not even testing that. I'm not sure. I have never gotten a straight answer about that. But I had a, a significant loss last year in December I could take on Litecoin, and I just traded it into Bitcoin and took a loss. Because it wasn't, I didn't buy Litecoin back, right? But that's a, if you're if you're doing trading like between stable coins back and forth, I can see that sooner or later, that I don't know why they couldn't apply that rule now. I just don't think they have. The reason they haven't is because the IRS has classified crypto as property, not a security. Okay. And the wash sale rule only applies, applies to, to securities. securities. I got you. I got you. But they'll fix it eventually. It'll take time. It may be 10 years, but 
it'll be fixed eventually. That's that's an issue. Now I do know another way around this. Let's say you're at the end of the year and you still have contributions that can be made, let's say, to your IRA. Right. And you know, Roth or otherwise, but I don't know why anybody would do a Roth. So you have a security that you're holding that's not in tax deferred status. If you if you sell that security at a loss, you write that capital loss off. When it moves into retirement, it is now legally laundered, I guess would be the way to put it. And now you can buy that same security back inside your IRA. And that's like that's a strategy people need to look at, especially if they're getting older and they're not maxing out that contribution and how long that money has to be locked in there. It starts to get shorter and shorter. And so now you just took a loss that's it's totally phantom. And it's totally legal. You know, I've never even thought about doing that, but I'm pretty sure that would work. That's a great it idea. It works. That was a that was a me and Pugliano sitting down having discussions type thing that came out. And I think that's why, like, the best client, I think, for a good CPA, a good tax attorney, is an educated client that knows they don't know everything, but knows a lot. Because this shit is constantly moving and constantly changing, And I think that when you have a good relationship with a consultant, your consultant isn't like your boss. It, they, they're much better like a, a member of your team. That's what you mentioned about one of Kiyosaki's books. Like He's dead on with your business needs a team. And I don't hire people to work in a business and then say, just sod off and do whatever you want, right? Like I manage that person or I put a manager over that person and then I manage the manager, right? Like I'm involved. I don't just like the guy says, Hey, we should do this and go, sure. Right? Like there's certain discretionary things you give a person the ability to do, but at a high level stuff, you want to collaborate. And I think that like, you know, that's an example right there. That's a new strategy now that you picked up during this discussion and you'll probably use it. And that's great. And I've always found When my years as a consultant, some of the best things I ever picked up, I picked up from good clients. Absolutely, it you know no again nobody knows all the tax code. Nobody knows even a large fraction of the tax code. And I, I have learned so much just by going through my clients' tax returns before I gave them advice and picking up something else. It's like oh yeah, you can do that, or oh that would be a different way to do it. Yeah. And as we talked about before, like there's there's always multiple ways to do your taxes. You just have to find the way that works the best. Well, you you have to think about things. You can't abuse these things, but you can use them. So, for instance, when you do meals, they're 50% deductible. Business meals are 50% deductible. But if you're feeding a lot of people and you're not doing it like I we went out to a restaurant and had drinks, like you're you're like running an event and you're feeding a lot of people, Well, it's catering, right? So now it's deductible fully instead of partially because it's not a business meal. It's catering for your clients. It's part of your cogs, your cost of goods sold. Like those types of little subtle things, like what you call it matters. If you call it meals, it's a, it's a half deduction. If you call it catering, assuming it qualifies, like you can't like go out to have dinner with your wife, talk about your business and call it catering. That's That's not what I'm saying here. But there are people who would feed their customers in some sort of event and call it a business meal and lose half the deduction. 
Although that's that's not forget taking your wife out to dinner. That could still be a business meal. Oh, so maybe just half of it. And things. it is. It is. I my wife posted a thing on Instagram to cover us the last one we went and had, and she said, "I just found out I'm employee of the month, and as a reward, I got three of these margaritas." <laughs> it got like 300 likes. It was it was just a picture of a margarita, you know. And it was like she's like, well, "What are we talking about for business today?" I'm like, "Well, you're employee of the month." She's like, "Oh, I got an idea," you know. And I mean, like, but we always actually do talk about business because we are it. We're the business, and there's always something that we're dealing with. Like, okay, I'm making structural changes in my schedule, so now we have to change the way we book guests. You know, we had to get through a few meals to figure out exactly how we're going to handle that. She does all my booking. That's legitimate. And, like, I don't know that you should deduct every meal you ever have out, but, like, every meal that you can legitimately deduct, I think, like you've said, the federal judge said it's my patriotic duty to deduct it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, again, my wife and I are real estate business partners. Oh. So we do five to six nice meals out. Just, you know, some of it's just talking about how things are going and, oh, hey, You know, there was a fire in this unit, so here's what's going on to take care of the repairs and the insurance. And you know, again, it's there's lots of little things you can do, and the best tax deductions are the ones that you would have done it anyway, but now it's tax deductible. Absolutely. Now, again, if you're doing weekly, you know, hundred dollar dinners with your wife, that's not going to go over. Well. No, no. I've even been told that like if you do something like for employees. But it's consistently like every week, you're going to end up with a problem, right? Because it becomes almost a form of compensation. So you're stuck between not deducting it or starting to basically say it is a form of compensation that needs to be taxed. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a deduction for you, but now it's taxable by the employee. And yeah. if you're the employee, it doesn't do you much good. No. That can come up sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, we had a um, a CFO that kind of reined us in on some spending. Like, you guys need to change the way you're doing this. And it was exactly that. Like, this looks wrong. Even if it's not wrong, it looks wrong. And I think that's something else you have to be conscious about. We kind of talked about that with maybe moving into a different category so one's not too large. Like, even if everything's legit, and it should be, because you're filing it and you're signing it and you're sending it to the freaking biggest gangster on the planet, so it should be legitimate. But, you you know, thinking about how it presents, I think, is is important as well. It, it definitely is, and, you know. There's, and that's part of what's the best way to do it. And at some point, it gets to be again. Sometimes maybe it's like, well, we could file this three different ways. This is going to save you a thousand dollars, but this way it's a lot less likely to get audited. I don't get to make that decision. Yeah. I give my clients the advice, and they get to make a decision. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's another part of kind of that teamwork. Uh, what are the biggest mistakes you see people make on their taxes? When you, when you sit down with somebody and look at what they're doing and go, ah, don't do that. So absolutely the biggest one is not having the correct type of taxation, especially lots of people are sole proprietors when they should be S corporations. Literally can be thousands of dollars in tax savings on your payroll taxes by doing that right. The second mistake is people who do that, but they do it wrong. If you're an S-corporation, you must pay yourself a reasonable wage or salary. And I've seen YouTube videos that say, oh, if you're making a hundred grand a year and you just make yourself an S-corp, you're going to save $15,000 a year in payroll taxes. IRS will find you. They will <laughs> find you typically within two years. 
Now, you can do it where it's maybe you pay yourself a $60,000 salary and you take a $40,000 dividend. And you can, you can shade those numbers in different ways depending on the business. But if you're not paying yourself any wage or salary as an S-Corp, literally, within two years, you will get a letter from the IRS. I, I guarantee it. There's other advantages to paying yourself, right? When we go back, we're talking about how some of this needs to be above board money because there's things you want to do. You now have payroll records, right? Like when you're trying to get financing or something, you have a paycheck, right? And, I, and also for as little as it's worth, it means you'll qualify for Social Security when you're older. Yeah. Assuming it's still around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, then I... I don't know a CPA that would miss this, but somebody doing their own taxes unless they had like a software program that alerts you to like you're doing something stupid here. One of the mistakes people could make is when you are doing your own um, Social Security payroll taxes, half of it is deductible from your main income if you're self-employed. So you're taking the deduction as the business because normally the employer would match that. When I, when I used to employ people of that 15%, I was paying about seven and a half of it. And that's another thing people need to look at when they're like, how much money do I need to make to walk away from my job? Like, you need to factor that in, that your your taxes go up when you work for yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and this isn't quite a tax issue, but it's related. A lot of people don't realize that if you're self-employed, you better be filing stuff quarterly with the IRS. Oh, yeah. You better be doing your quarterly payments. No, you'll get... You'll get <laughs> You get butt-stroked hard for that one, man. That's that's. I, I have family that have done very well working for themselves, did not take my advice on that, and they continue to do better and better and better. They ended up basically paying last year's taxes this year over and over again, trying to catch up. And they, I think they just finally caught up like five years into it to where they're not paying penalties and shit anymore. Like they got it hard because they weren't doing prepayments. And I... I know this is considered bad strategy, but I overpay my prepayments. I'm not ever going to be in a situation where I'm writing them a check at the end of the year. I'm not doing it. Um, I have a formula I've worked out. Every year, my accountant loves everything I do except that. She's like, you get so much money back. You should have kept this. It's coming back. I'm not worried about it. Uh, you know. And I think one year, when I first started doing things on my own, I ended up having to write the IRS a $6,200 check. Um, and some of it was money I would not have had to pay. Some was penalty, some was the additional tax I owed. And I didn't even not make my quarterlies. I underpaid them. And if you underpay them enough, they'll, they'll ding you on that. Uh, another thing I've learned, though, let's say you have a much better year and you underpaid, you can end up getting out of the penalty for underpaying if you've consistently been paying less and it's been enough. But I just I try to stay away from that shit. Yeah, that, that is something that definitely comes up. Um, and again, it's, it's not mercy. It's actually in the tax code. You know, the IRS is going to collect the taxes that are owed, but it's not meant to penalize you because you had a good year. But yeah. especially if you've, for multiple years, you've been skirting it and now you had a really good year, maybe now you're not going to qualify for the exemption. Yeah. So I, I always, I, I tell my clients, I'd much rather you overpay than underpay. I'd much rather you overpay by as little as possible. Let's try to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. 
but the other the other really big mistakes I see people make, and it's kind of a, a mirror image of each other. Some people don't take allowable deductions. Um, one I see a lot of people say is, yeah, I could depreciate my rental property, but when I sell it, they're just going to recapture that depreciation, mm. and so you know, I'm it's going to be a wash, and it's not for two reasons. The first reason is with inflation. If you save five thousand dollars in taxes this year, and that raises your tax bill in ten years by five thousand dollars, you're still ahead. Yep. And, that, yep. and that's completely ignoring the time value of money as well. But also, when you say deduction this year, it might be a deduction on your income taxes, which if you're in again the twenty eight percent tax bracket, you got to save twenty eight percent. Well, when the recapture comes in, the capital gains is still at 15%. You just pay that 15%. Yeah. So you just saved 13% on your taxes anyway. But on the other hand, there are times to not take deductions. And the biggest one is in a new business. If you have a new business and you have a lot of deductions that you could take in the first year or you could depreciate them over multiple years, you might be better off depreciating it sure. because you might not have enough income – to be worth it, you're it's like, oh great, I'm in the ten percent tax bracket and I saved eight thousand dollars. That's eight hundred dollars in my pocket. Yeah. Versus if I could have taken two thousand dollars a year and next year I'm in the twenty eight percent tax bracket, I saved a lot more money. And one of the things I'm telling a lot of clients is, hey, be ready for twenty fifteen to twenty sixteen, because that's when everyone's tax rates are going back up unless they pass a new law. I mean, so you, you, I think you meant 2025, 2026. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. I just went um, back in time. like, holy shit, 2016. Woohoo, no pandemic. <laughs> sorry, uh, yeah, it's 20, 2026, yeah. all the tax brackets are going back up. So if you can choose to have this business expense December versus January, it could make thousands of dollars in difference in your taxes. So maybe you holding off on that deduction until the next year might actually save you money. Now you've you're you're kind of a guy that likes to go to seminars and workshops and stuff. You came to mine. You went to Nicole's at Living Free in Tennessee. What what do you like about going to events like that? I think in person seminars, especially those smaller, you know, fifty to maybe a hundred people seminars, are brilliant for a couple reasons. Um, the first is it's an investment in yourself. It's an investment in learning more about different things. And especially those seminars, you learn a lot of different things. And you never know when something you learn, one area is going to help you someplace else. Mm. Um, but even better, you get to meet people. And I think investing in connections and relationships is an amazing investment. Um, you know, you, you made some mention about, you know, some of these seminars where you pay people $20,000 for advice. You know, I went to a seminar. And I joined a program for $3,000 because it got me into a Facebook group with other real estate investors. Hmm. I have made 10 times that much money by doing business with those people that I had to pay to get in. Buying into that group, buying into that ecosystem was one of the best investments I've ever made. Same thing. you know, The real cost of going to a seminar is not the money. It's the time. Absolutely. But if I can make, if I can make one strong connection per day, it easily paid for itself. And one of my, you know, one of my very first clients, I, well, not short, one of my not first clients, uh, a recent client I got was somebody who I was talking with them on MeWe. 
they said something that was wrong about taxes. I gently said, well, you're probably right, mm. but there are some exceptions to that. Somebody else who I met at your seminar was in that same discussion, and they commented, hey, this Matt guy, he's really sharp. He knows what he's talking about. Listen to him. And that guy that I just corrected sent me a DM and said, okay, I want to hire you. And like within three days, I had a check from him hiring me. That I have no idea if he would have hired me if that other person hadn't come in, and, and I'm not going to name him just in case. Yeah. But if he hadn't said, this is a sharp guy, he knows what he's talking about, that sort of social proof is amazingly powerful. There's not 100%, but odds are they would not have. Because you're just some voice on the internet now, right? Like it, when exactly. you know someone that knows someone, like all of a sudden, now you're, that's basically a referral. And that's a referral that you obtained by coming here. Uh, we had talked earlier, and you told me that you actually, your website, Nicole Sauce built that. So that was it, ex exchange there. There was a gal at that that did a presentation on landscape design. She picked up two clients. I have no idea how much business gets done at one of my workshops with, you know, 60 to 80 people in it. But I know it's a lot, and I know it just it, it continues to build. And I think that, like, events like that, You know, like you mentioned the real estate one where you kind of bought your way into a group of investors. That's great. But I think it's these events that are not necessarily about the thing that you're doing that become some of the best opportunities because you form the relationship first. So you're, what you're doing is you're growing your warm market and you're not doing it solely to gain business. But when you grow your warm market, You grow your business. That just, that's how that works. Because I'd rather do business with someone I know, someone I've had a meal with, someone I've shaken hands with, than somebody I found you know, on freaking Angie's list. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's why I sought out Nicole to do my website. I knew her. I knew that she was not going to take advantage of me. And frankly, I knew if she did take advantage of me, I knew people she knew, and I could do something about it. Yeah, yeah. Again, if, if you know if, if you know somebody who knows me and I do a bad job, you're not just going to let me know. You're going to let that person know, and they ain't referring me any more work. Yeah, yeah, and it's amazing what relationships do when the entity is small enough to have flexibility. Of a couple of months ago, there's a little liquor store that's right here on the corner up for me. They cost a little bit more than the one down in town or whatever, but they're convenient. And I like to do business locally, so I'll pick up a bottle of something here or there. And they know me. So I went in one day, and my wife had asked me to pick up like a bottle of wine on the way home. So I stopped to pick a bottle of wine up, and I'm like, damn it. No, i got to put it back. Sorry, wipe it out. And the guy's like, what's the deal? I'm like, I, I forgot my wallet. And I almost never forget my wallet, but I forgot my wallet. you know. And he's like... I just take it. I'm like, what? Because I'm like, I, I'm not just like, because I don't know if he owns the place and he's get, like, I'm not really understanding this. He goes, yeah, stop by tomorrow and I'll make a note and you can pay for it then. Like, I guarantee you he wouldn't have done that with somebody that walked in there for the first time. Right? He's like, this guy's not going to ruin the relationship he has. He comes here all the time over a $10 bottle of wine. And I don't want to inconvenience him. And so... That, that same dynamics at work when you go out and you meet people in real life, people realize like they don't want to damage this relationship, so they're going to make good on it. it and it's amazing the connections you make. One, one of the attorneys who was a mentor to me uh, went to breakfast at a hotel restaurant once a week, every week for years. 
And he got to know the wait staff and he got to know the bus boys and he got to know everybody there and he tipped well and he always had out his business card. And he did it purely to get business. And it took years for him to get anything from there. And now it is like and again, people who haven't worked there for a decade, they kept his business card huh. and they called him up to hire him because they need an attorney. Because they've progressed in life to where they actually might hire an attorney. Right. Exactly. Like like yeah, like you know, when you're when you're you're schlepping tables, like you're probably not, you know, calling an attorney every other week. But those people, you know, that's one of those professions that people generally go on to do something from because it's you have to want to work to do that job. You know what I'm saying? Like you gotta be a, a hustler to do that job well. You, to make decent money at it, you gotta you gotta do it. You you gotta have something in you, and I find a lot of people that come out of that kind of service industry end up doing really badass stuff. So, what a forward looking investment there. You know, and and again, like it, it was even better than he expected it to be, and he's glad he did it. He, like he stopped because the rest like like the restaurant went out of business or something in ah. the hotel. Um, but again, he did it for almost a decade, I think, and you know, eventually it really paid off. Huh. That's a long that's a long uh, timeline horizon investment strategy, but clearly it worked. Um, so, uh, so we're at. Um, let's talk a little bit about before we wrap up real quick. Just a little bit about some of your hobbies. You you got into uh, weightlifting recently, and uh, it's become a really big part of your life. How'd you get into it, and why is it such a a big deal for you? So it was just over two years ago I got into it. Um, I was fat. I was unhealthy. I was, you know, going up the stairs and breathing heavily. Mm. And I finally said, I got to do something. And I've, I've joined a gym. It didn't work. I've done, I've done diets alone. It didn't work. I got to do something physical. And I heard about this program called Starting Strength that just happened to be opening up a new franchise in Dallas, which was very convenient because that's where I'm in. And I signed up for it. And I started weightlifting, and it, it's great because, first of all, it was actually more community because um, the way they do it is it's a class of six to eight people. Each has their own rack. They're all lifting, but when anybody's ever actually working out, they're doing it with a coach, making sure they're doing it right, and then when they're done and resting, the next person goes. Hmm. And I just did it because I was hoping to lose weight, and it really became a big part of my life, and there's a lot of things I've gotten out of it. One of the things I love most, though, is the discipline. The, this is what I do. And it's hard. Like, yeah, you go in the first day and you're doing light weights. But in this program, you are upping the weights every single day unless something happens. Mm. And that discipline of, I come in every single day, or not every day, I come in three days a week. And I add two and a half pounds, or I add five pounds to this lift. And it, it helps train you to be disciplined because you can see your progress. And it can be incredibly rapid. Um, I still remember my, my squat the first day I went in was 95 pounds. And about nine months later, uh, the gym closed temporarily for COVID. But right before that, I did a 315-pound squat. And I'll tell you, man, that, that increase in my confidence in the knowing I could do that it bled over into all the rest of my life. Yeah, I think there's a solid case for having some disciplined component of your life 
if it's weightlifting, it, I don't know that it even matters what it is. It's, it has to be the thing that it does it for you. But having that structure and that routine, I've heard you know studies done that people that have even simple routines in their life tend to be happier people and live longer lives. And I, I just wonder if it's because it's almost like a waking dream in a way. Like it gives your mind a chance to reorder itself. I'm sure when you're lifting, you know, a heavy weight, you have to focus on that weight. You can't worry about like your car repair that needs to get done, right? You got to focus on that thing, and that brings that focus. It brings that kind of meditative state. And it actually teaches me to focus in other areas. Like I've, I've definitely become a lot better at. Okay, I have this work to do now. I must do this. Oh, I'm working from home. Kids being noisy. Nope, can't nope. focus on the kid. Got to work on Gotta this. Got to do the work. And the, again, it's discipline. And one thing teaches you discipline elsewhere. But the other thing I really love about it is, yes, yeah, it's, it's almost meditative because there is no thought going on when I am under 300 pounds on my back or when I'm deadlifting 350 pounds. Because if I'm thinking about anything else, I'm not going to do the lift. And just that, that again, it's, it's that empty mind or that, that still mind. Just for a couple of seconds even, it calms me down. It, it just, it makes me better. Well, awesome, man. I really appreciate you taking time to be with us today. Uh, can you tell people how they can learn more about you and get in touch with you? Sure thing. Uh, as mentioned, I've got a website. It is agoristtaxadvice.com. Uh, Got a few places there where you can contact me, but I also did set up a special web page uh, for your listeners, agoristtaxadvice.com slash the survival podcast. Don't put .com on the end of that like I have already once. Um, but that'll take you straight to a calendar link where you can schedule a free phone call with me. Um, you know, I only do so many uh, appointments a week because I can't spend all my time on the phone with prospective clients. But if you've got a small business, if you are planning on a small business, if you need help with your taxes, with planning your taxes, uh, please set up an appointment. If I can help you, I will. If I can't help you, I'll tell you. Um, I don't have enough time to help everybody, and I want to help the people I can. Well, awesome, Matt. I really appreciate you being with us today. I'll make sure there's a link to that. And you've got a few social media things in your uh, guest form. I'll make sure they're there as well. So thanks for spending some time with us today, man. Thanks for having me. Well, really good conversation there. And uh, I agree that saving money on your taxes is one of the easiest ways to save money. Because you don't tend to have to do a lot. You just have to think a little bit better. Uh, another way that you can save money, pretty, pretty uh, brain-free required, is to become a member of the MSB or the Member Support Brigade here at the Survival Podcast. Here's how it works. You go to survivalpodcast.com, you click on members, you learn about all the discounts, and you sign up for it. You just click a button, and it's really easy. You sign up, you make your payment. It's 50 bucks a year. Then you use the discounts that we have negotiated for you with over 70 vendors, and it's going to be stuff that you probably would buy anyway. Just like we talked about today with Matthew, like, you know, it's great to take something you would have done anyway and turn it into a tax deduction. How about taking a purchase you were going to make anyway and saving money on it? It's another great way, spending less and keeping more of your own money. And I hear from people all the time 
that say their membership has paid for itself so many times they will never leave, they will never stop being a member. Give it a shot and you'll see why. The survivalpodcast.com and just click on members or forward slash members. Uh, next up, another way you can save money or at least make sure you make good purchases is to use my recommendations on products that you buy. You can do that by going to tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Go there, and you can see all the categories of everything I've ever reviewed. You can see all the reviews I've made. Anything on there, I've bought, you know, I bought it myself. I've used it. And if it's something that is like a one-time purchase, the only reason I ain't purchased it again is because I ain't lost it, give it away, or broke it yet. But if I needed another one, I would buy it again. That's my commitment to you. But it doesn't even matter if you buy something I recommend. As long as you start your shopping at tspaz.com, you will help support us and the work that we do no matter what you eventually buy. So just go there first. It's real easy. It doesn't even cost you anything. Today's item of the day is one for your kitchen and one for your belly. It is sardines. And I know some of you are like, sardines? No, no. Well, if you actually feel that way, like there is no redemption in a sardine, even the best sardines on the planet probably won't change your mind. But if you're like, I can take them or leave them, I'm going to tell you about the best, and I mean the best sardine you can buy and have shipped to your own house. It's called Matisse Gallego. These come from off the coast of Portugal. They are sardines. Like If you look at the ingredients on the can, sardines, salt, olive oil, full stop. That is all. They keep forever, and they are delicious. You want to give these guys a try. They are fantastic. I even have a couple of videos for you using them in cooking. We don't usually think of cooking with sardines, but Alex the French guy, one of my favorite people on YouTube, uh, just did some really cool stuff with them, so I added those videos to this review. I've been recommending these things for years, and uh, they really give you a long-term storable source of protein and incredibly high-quality fat for not much money. And that's a place where a lot of preppers struggle. Uh, check them out again. They're made by a company called Matisse Gallego. And I found them because I decided, like, is there really a best sardine? And I, I didn't find that everybody – there's apparently food blogs that reviewed all the great sardines. And I didn't find them at the number one position on everybody's list. But I found them – at the number one to number three position on everybody's list. They, you know, a lot of them they were number one on, a lot of them they were number two, I think one they were number three. It's amazing how many people have done this. Um, but what I noticed is the ones that were number one, number two, number three changed out a lot. There were a lot of opinions up and down the list, but what always was consistently at the top was the Matisse Gallego. And that's different people, different opinions, different, and they all kind of zoned in on this one. I gave them a shot. They are not like your granddaddy sardines from the uh, from the Piggly Wiggly. They are they are great. Check them out today. Matisse Gallego sardines and olive oil, and always just start your online shopping at tspaz.com. That'll help us out. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up with our song of the day. And uh, this is a song I had never heard before. It's by Godsmack, and it's called Under Your Scars. And it's using the metaphor of scarring, if you can think of somebody that looks really, really horrific due to injury, and you see them underneath them. But the scars that are really being talked about in here are the the scars in our lives, the mistakes we've made, the, the wounds we've suffered, etc. And the song really speaks for itself, I think, very well on that. And it's not directly related, but it, it gives me an opportunity to talk about something that I, I wrote today. Um, on MeWe. And I, what I think I'll do instead of just talking about it, I'll just go ahead and uh, and read it to you guys. And this is a different side of things here, but 
it was in response to Dawn on MeWe. She posted a, a graphic, and it was about something called hypervigilance. And hypervigilance is a form of complex PTSD, and it leads to things like sleep problems and being easily startled, uh, having extreme responses to being startled, trouble concentrating, exhaustion, extreme anxiety, overstimulation, and environments can feel intolerable. Uh, it's not pleasant. And this was my response to this. And this is about our veterans coming home and, and experiencing this particular symptom along with you know overall PTSD. I said, you don't even need trauma to experience this. Just consistent training. You are literally trained to be hypervigilant in the military. Why? It keeps you and others alive. This is about when it is in overdrive all the time, and it is a big problem. However, it's also a characteristic of most prior military, especially the recently separated. It's one way vets can often ID each other. So when is it a problem versus a good trait to have? When it prevents you from living a normal life. This is one reason I spent almost three months in the woods when I got out in 1993. I didn't have PTSD. I didn't have trauma from combat. Nothing really bad ever really happened to me. However, being a soldier on deployments in the third world countries was sufficient to have your head, to have you always checking your six, sleeping light, etc. Okay, so why am I pointing all this out? Because what no one seems to recognize is why it's worse when people come home to where it's supposed to be safe. When you checked your six in the field, you almost always saw other soldiers, guys on your side. They had your six and you had theirs. Now you take a guy out of the military, you take his uniform and his gun and his gear, and you sit him down on Maple Street where he has no one trained to be vigilant to cover his six and no one else to look out for himself. He spent four or more years training all the time to always have his head on a swivel, always pay attention, down to making sure he didn't have a single stray string in his ammo pouch that could snag a mag. Now here he is in any town USA. No buddies who have his back. He can't shut off that training, and he is for the first time in a long time actually alone. The solution here, and with many forms of PTSD, is actually quite simple. Put these men together. Think of being a child when you were small, and you say you went to the mall, and you lost your parents, couldn't find them. How did you feel? Then when you find them, how did you feel? It's not the same, but it's the best way I can explain it to you if you've not experienced it. And you know what the worst part is? These guys do not even know or realize that it is the problem when they get out of service. They don't know it is what's going on. They have been trained to face fear. Fear they can't explain is as foreign to them as an ancient language on a cave wall. By the time you understand all this, you have generally adapted to your life or taking your own. We could save so many lives and stop so much drug abuse, mostly prescription drugs, if we would just address this root problem. And that's a scar that you carry from military service. We call it situational awareness, and when it's not in hyperdrive, it's a good thing. But I didn't realize this until I was in my 40s, that it was part of not immediately fitting back in to the, you know, the, the, the normal world. You can't shut it off. 
You can't turn it off. It won't go away. You can't train to do something almost every day of your life for years and then go, oh, it doesn't apply here anymore. And here's a funny thing, to me anyway. It never, ever bothered me on leave because I knew I was going back. It never bothered me until I was out for good. And I did not know that was what bothered me. I didn't realize I, I was alone for the first time in a long time. I like to be alone. But when you're walking down the street and there's other people and you're alone, that's different. When things could go wrong and you're alone and you haven't been, that's different. And when you have apprehension and fear, and I don't mean that you're afraid to walk down the street. You don't even know you're afraid. You don't know that it's fear. You have no idea that's what it is. And you have a fear that you don't even not understand why you're afraid. You have a fear you don't even recognize as fear. Because some of these guys did go through shit. Some of these guys that have real problems with this. Far more than they just you know can't spend you know 30 minutes in a grocery store without wanting to pull their hair out. People that have real problems from this. They stood in the face of being shot at of being blown up, and they didn't run. They didn't show fear. They were not not afraid. They knew how to control the fear because they knew what the fear was and where the fear came from. And they knew that it was fear. It's just a different way of looking at things. And it amazes me that no one seems to recognize it. No one seems to understand it. We know that when we put veterans together in like veterans retreats and all that a lot of healing happens, but I don't know that we understand why. And I'm telling you, it took me almost 20 years to figure out why. It's because you are separated from the people that had your back. And not only do they not have your back anymore, you don't have anybody to do it for that can reciprocate. Doesn't mean that you won't protect people if you, if you end up in the right situa situation where you need to. It's not what it's about. What it's about is that there's a certain level of even the worst soldiers out there. There's a certain level of competence. There's a certain amount. I can count on that guy over there just because he wears this uniform. I can count on him for at least this level. And now it's gone. And I know some of you guys, my anarchist buddies, are like, "Why he's worried about the military. I'm not worried about the military itself. The military itself has its own problems right now. I'm worried about the men and women coming home and experiencing this and not understanding what it is. It might be something worth pointing out to someone if you know they're having trouble with readjustment. See them through their scars. And with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Spider